I'm not used to doing this, so I was cut off guard. Sorry about that. When they came to him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, how did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, for you were looking for me, but not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. Do not work for food and spoils, the food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God, the Father, has placed his seal of approval. Then they ask him, what must we do to, to do the works that God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. So they ask him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see and believe in you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written, and he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on give us this bread. And then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. We're going to dismiss our kids to Children's Church at this time. And they'll come back after the sermon before our communion time. If you haven't done so already, um, open up to John chapter 6. John's gospel is different. Um, If you know... um, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're the four Gospels. They're the stories of Jesus. And the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they play well together. They are very, very similar in their content, their layout. John marches to a completely different drummer. And um, John, one of the 12, we think died of old age, on the island of Patmos. That's where he was exiled to receive the Revelation, the last book of the New Testament. He also wrote this gospel. In working through this gospel, we've been through um, these incidents with Jesus where he is with different people, and I began to see threads. I began to see themes throughout this, even these first six chapters, and I began to see... Jesus is better than we think. Now, that seems like an obvious statement. Thank you for teaching me nothing right now. Jesus is better than we think. But John's premise here is we set up with something we think we know, and Jesus says, I'm better than that. And let, me, let me just tell you where I'm coming from. Flip back in chapter 1. If you're, again, Bible's open. Hopefully your app is working. Um, by the way, um, newsflash. The uh, Wi-Fi here, still free, still no password, but it says GCC Guest. Anybody catch that? If you got on your phone, it says GCC Guest. Just punch that and you'll be in. Um, No data required. Jesus is um, better than Wi-Fi. He's better than... uh, So, chapter 1. We see Jesus calling his first disciples. And at the end of chapter 1... He talks to Nathaniel, 
says, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree, and Nathaniel, for some reason, we don't know the backstory, Nathaniel is blown away and says, you are the son of God. And Jesus basically says, that's impressive to you? <laughs> you ain't seen nothing yet, Powell. Wait till you see the Son of Man. I mean, what do you see heaven opened? That's going to be, that, that's amazing. What I just did, cakewalk. I mean, wait till you get to the good stuff. Chapter 2, Jesus and his mother and his disciples, they're invited to a wedding. And after a little bit of confrontational conversation with his mother, Jesus turns several gallons of water into the best wine that the guy ever tasted. Jesus is, was like, you think that's wine? Really? You think this is a party? Hang on just a second. I'll get you some good stuff. This is the better stuff. And then, and later on in chapter 2, he goes into the temple. He starts throwing tables and coins and people around. And they say, what authority do you have to do this? What sign will you give? Who do you think you are? And Jesus says, remember what he says? Destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it again in three days. I wonder if he was pounding his chest when he said that. Destroy this temple. I don't know. But he said, in other words, you think I'm talking about stone and mortar, but I'm talking about resurrection. I'm, I'm talking about something way bigger than you're even thinking about. You think it's impossible to build this building in three days. Wait till you see me rise from the dead. Chapter 3. Poor Nicodemus, he just can't wrap his brain around this idea that you must be born again, born from above, born from heaven, born anew. You know, Jesus, it's like Jesus is saying, you've seen a baby born, you know. That happens all the time. Wait till you see someone who was born from above. Wait till you see a life that's transformed from the, in the renewal of their minds, the forgiveness of sin, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Wait till you see that. You think a miracle happens every time a baby's born? You're right, but wait till you see rebirth. John 4. The woman at the well comes to draw water, sees Jesus there. Jesus says, will you give me a drink? She's kind of uncomfortable. Anyway, they start talking about water. And Jesus says, if you would have asked me, I would have given you living water. And the lady is a little interested. Well, what do you mean by living water? And Jesus said, if you, you, know, this, you drink this water, you'll never be thirsty again. And she's thinking, oh, well, that's awesome. I just won't have to come back here and get water anymore. And he says, you're thinking too small. You're not, I'm not talking about the well that you're getting water from. I'm talking about this living essence that when, when you ingest this, you become a well of fresh living water for anyone around you. You think you know water, but wait till I blow the doors off of your reality and give you living water. He kind of re, uh, reaffirms this later on in John 7, when Jesus repeats this idea, but he inserts himself into the story. And he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Better than any Gatorade you could ever imagine. Chapter 5. 
This poor guy, paralyzed for years, sitting by this pool, waiting for something to happen so that he could get in and get healed. That's, what, that's his plan. And Jesus comes in. He's, he, he knows the man's plight. He understands how long he's been there. He knows what he's waiting for to happen. And he knows that the man's focus is on his inability and his limitations and it's everybody else's fault and I can't get my thing done when I want it done to see if I can get well. And Jesus says, you're thinking too small. And Jesus, uninvited, unasked, just heals the guy. Get up, walk. You think you had a plan. Let me just... You haven't seen anything yet. I have a better plan, Jesus says. I am the plan. So you see what we're... What, what we're Jesus is interacting with people, and in their reality, it's as good as it gets. Or this is what I really would like, and Jesus says, you have no idea how much more there is. Let me open the door a little bit and show you. And so we come to chapter 6, a very familiar story, included in a lot of children's books. All four gospel writers tell this story. John puts his flavor to it. He is a first-hand eyewitness as one of the 12 disciples. Sea of Galilee, they're on the east side of this uh, body of water. And there's thousands of people who have followed Jesus. They're waiting to see something amazing, something more. There was some speculation about Jesus. His popularity is rising. He's worked some miracles, words getting around. And they're wondering, could this be the guy? Could this be the one that Moses talked about, the prophet from among you? Could this be the line of David? Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the one who gets Rome off of our necks? Could this be the one who gets us back on the map to raise up the throne of David and get us back into power again. Could this be the guy? So, not only were all these common folk watching him, most certainly the Jewish leadership was, and I'm sure, with all of this attention, that the Romans had their ears perked. Their radar was up. No wonder Everywhere Jesus went and did something, he said, shh, don't tell anybody. I know I just raised this person from the dead, but don't talk about it. You know, don't, I don't want a bunch of undue crafts. I know I did this for you, but don't talk about it. And so, but they did anyway. They did anyway. So we come to this story. And the reason why they're following him, you will find it right here in John 6, verse 2. Great crowd of people followed him because... They saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Jesus had been busy. He's healing people left and right. And this is unprecedented. This is amazing. This is, at the very least for some, a curious sideshow, a diversion. Jesus is experiencing this crowd, mob-like mentality, thousands of people. And we, we come to this point where they're out in this remote place. They've been there all day. And in verse Five, Jesus looked up, saw a great crowd coming toward him, and he said to Philip, this is, I mean, this is almost funny. Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now, you, we don't have a video camera here, and, I, you know, 
Could it be that Jesus sees the crowd coming and he goes, Hey, Philip, look, what are we going to do? Where are we going to get food? Do you think Jesus is saying that? No. No, Jesus has turned to Philip and says, Hey, Phil, let's get some bread for these people. Just like he's asking what time it is. Where will, we buy, where will we get bread? Because, I mean, honestly, like they had the money, for one, and there was a Panera just around the corner, right? I mean, the bagels, oh man, it's just great stuff. No, there was none of that. And verse 6, John gives us a little insight as to Jesus' motivation. He asked this only to test him for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Oh man, Jesus will mess with you. He will put up a situation, he will put you in an impossible situation where there is no earthly solution and then he will ask you to do something about it. Knowing you have no idea what to do or no resources to do it and he will say, hey, how about you do something about that? I love Jesus' reaction when Matthew tells this story, in that version, it's the disciples that come to Jesus and they're freaked out about the problem. These people are coming. They've been here a long time. They, they're getting hangry. Um, you know, how, let's send them away so they can get some food somewhere else. And Jesus tells them, they don't need to go anywhere. You feed them. And at that point, I imagine that they're waiting for him to start laughing like he's kidding. But he doesn't. He just stares at them like, I am serious. You feed them. They didn't even have enough food for themselves, let alone 5,000 men plus women and children. Imagine the entire population of Parsons (laughs) in a natural amphitheater up on a hillside. If you look at the east, I went to Google Earth. If you have Google Earth, this really it's a great time waster and you learn some things while you're at it. You can get this thing in 3D mode and zoom down on something and fly over top of it. It's kind of cool. So I zoomed in on the Sea of Galilee, turned east, and I looked up the hill. In a mile and a half, it goes up 600 feet. It's not like huge steep, but it is a good grade And if you're standing at the beach, you have this natural sound amphitheater. To be able to speak to 12,000 people or 15,000 people, you need not only to project your voice, you need geography to help you. And Jesus had that. So, I mean, thousands and thousands of people gathered all right there. And imagine you're one of the 12. And your master and teacher tells you to come up with dinner. So chapter one of John is Andrew that brings Peter to Jesus. And now Andrew is the one who brings a boy to Jesus who's willing to give up what little lunch that he had. Verse nine, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But here's the question. But how far will they go among so many? I think if I was Andrew, I wouldn't even brought it up. I mean, really, how many of you would have? Hey, got a little bit of lunch here. Just thought I'd ask, just help out here a little bit, you know. 
I mean, and they're not even big fish. It's the, the word is like for a little salted fish, like a little sar- sardine action. A couple sardines and five little bitty barley. Barley was the cheapest grain there was, poor man's bread. And little bitty loaves, just enough for that kid and maybe his little brother. But how far will that go among so many? And you know what happens next. Jesus took the little lunch. He had the crowd sit down on the grass. He gave thanks for what was offered. He broke the loaves. He gave it to all of his disciples. And all the disciples took it and gave it to all the people. And then what happened? They took leftovers. Jesus said, gather up everything so nothing is wasted. So each disciple had a basket and gathered up all the leftovers. And this is where most of the children's books stop. And we can learn some very, very helpful things about Jesus taking what little we have and making it much. Our willing, obedient sacrifice, our effort, our resources, our time, he can take and he can multiply them and he will miraculously do things that we could never do with whatever we're willing to give him, which belong to him in the first place, honestly. Nothing belongs to us. It's all his. So absolutely, take these things into account. Trust him to make much of what he let you use. And when he does that great thing, when he does this miracle in your life, when he makes more of what you gave than you could ever ask or think, he's going to ask you kind of a sharp, pointed question, which we'll get to the latter part of this chapter. The question, I think, can be summarized like this. Do you want more bread and fish, or do you want more of me? Would you rather see more action like this, or do you really want to know where this is coming from? See, the the crowd heard what had happened. Word got around fast how this meal took place, where it came from. And, And the reaction... Verse uh, 14, the people saw the miraculous sign Jesus did. They began to say, surely this is the prophet who was to come into the world. They had him pegged. Verse 15, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So this nationalistic fever came over this crowd. They know this, 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 like I said, has to be the guy. This is the one. So we're going to just rush at him, make him king, and 5,000 men make a pretty good instant militia. They could have gathered up even more support. Jesus had himself a devoted crowd. They were full, happy. And they may have made a dent in the Roman Empire, the occupying force at that time. Now, And if Jesus was building an earthly kingdom, he may have taken them up on it, but he had none of it. This was Jesus' big break. In the eyes of the world, he could have had a huge platform to preach his message. He could have reached thousands more people. It's the kind of momentum any church prays for. But Jesus ran up a mountain by himself, made the disciples get in a boat and go to the other side of the lake. And the people were like, where's he going? What's he doing? Why is it that when Jesus has this opportunity to really draw a crowd, the first thing he does is kill the momentum? (laughs) Not only does he not want more attention, he repels thousands of people at once. 
After feeding upwards to 15,000 people, he runs away. Now, there's this whole thing about walking on the water that we're not going to be able to get time to do anything about, but read that. It's pretty amazing. But Jesus, when they find him on the other side of the lake and wonder, how did you get here? Because you weren't with your disciples. and We saw you go that way, but now you're here. And How did that happen? He pretty much just chews them out for their shallow selfishness and then delivers one of the biggest killjoy sermons ever and lost nearly all of his followers in a single day. Church growth by Jesus. Verse 26. Well, verse 25. This is where Rhoda got into reading. They found him and they said, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus was like, you're not here for me. You're here for lunch. You don't want God. You want more food. You want another show. You want to, wow, hey, something amazing is happening. You don't really want what I have to offer. It's what he's saying. He just rebuked him. Work for the things that, that do not spoil, not for food that does. Work for what endures to eternal life, which, get this, the Son of Man, which is his favorite title for himself, will give you. I will give you eternal life. If this is what you're after, if you want more bread and fish, go to John, Long John Silver's or something. I mean, you know, I will give you what you need, not what you want. And so they asked the question, what good work of God, what, what do we do to do the works that God requires? And Jesus answered very simply, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. They understand this correctly to be referring to himself. And so they ask, what miraculous sign then will you give us that we will see it and believe you? Other than yesterday, what you did with the loaves and fish, that was pretty cool. But what miraculous sign will you do because our forefathers ate the manna in the desert? In other words, I mean, they just saw the loaves and fish multiply. They want another sign from heaven. And wow, wow us, Jesus. You know, we know Moses. He fed the people for 40 years. If you're better than Moses, you better start doing something better than Moses. And Jesus says, verse 32, Moses didn't give you bread. God did. The bread of God is the one who comes from heaven. The bread you need is the person who came down from heaven who gives life to the world. So they're either confused or interested or both, and they say, well, give us this bread. It's kind of reminiscent of the lady at the well. Give me this water. Give us this bread so our appetites will, you know, have the superfood or whatever it is you're talking about. Give us this bread. And Jesus says one of his I am statements, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. And from there, the dialogue just gets more and more confrontational. I took in my Bible and I highlighted um, the places where Jesus talks about bread and I highlighted the places where he talks about eternal life. And just going from verse 35 on down the line, verse 40, he says, My Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. Verse 47, 
I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. Verse 51, at the last part of that verse. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Verse 57, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Verse 63, the Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Again, again, again. Life, 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 eternity, eternity, eternity. Rewind the tape a little bit. We're going to go through all the bread passages here. It gets more and more interesting. Verse 33. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then verse 35, we already said it. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Verse 48. Again, I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert and they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Verse 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven. He's making claims about himself that are more than just a little troubling to, who, to, to the people that are listening to him. And it gets worse. Verse 45, he says, It is written in the prophets, They will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. He's talking about himself. And they're getting more and more uptight. He's calling himself equal with God. He's calling himself equal to the gift of God, this gift of life, this manna that came from heaven. He's calling himself this bread, this nourishment. And in verse 48 to 51, three times in three verses, he refers to himself as this bread. And twice he mentions eating this bread to have life. And he mentions again and again, this is my flesh. And verse 52, you can just imagine what it looks like. Verse 52, the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus is making it harder and harder for them to hang on. He just keeps upping his game. He keeps making it worse. And, by the way, and drink my blood. Oh, gross. What? You want, to, you want us to carve you up and serve you? Like, what, what, what on earth are you talking about? Are you advocating cannibalism? No. No. Everyone can agree that's gross and wrong. But Jesus doesn't try to clear up the confusion at all. He pushes forward with this teaching until verse 60. Ah, he said, upon hearing this, many of the disciples, and this is more than just the 12, by the way. This is the crowd of people who had been gathered to hear him. Many of them said, this is a hard teaching. Hmm. Yeah. Who can accept it? Answer, not us. 
not going to stick around for this anymore. And verse 61, Jesus continues to amaze me. We paint him the meek and mild, you know, the calm. But I just imagine he getting a little snarky right here. Verse 61, aware that his disciples were crumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Excuse me, are you bothered by this? Want me to call your mom? You know, are you going to cry about this for a little while? Would you, again, you haven't seen anything yet. What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? You want me to blow your mind for a second? Think about what that was like. At this point, everybody was just feeling confused or a little sick at the thought of just chomping on him. And they started walking out. Verse 66 tells us that at this point, many of his disciples turned away and left him. Jesus went from 15,000 people or so on a hillside to a crowded synagogue down to 12 really confused but loyal disciples. And that doesn't bother him. In fact, he doesn't even stop with the 12. He turns to them. He's like, one of you is a devil. (laughs) Because one of them was. He knew who would betray him. He knew who would believe in him. I don't think Jesus is in a bad mood. (laughs) He's like not having a bad day or anything. He's trying to get people to say, it's not just what I give you that matters. He wants us to want him more than anything else and get past all of this stuff. Jesus has much to give us. But do we want Jesus what do we want what Jesus gives more than we want him? And here's the question. Would we want Jesus if he didn't give us anything? Would you? Would I? I mean, it's all great when we see mountains of bread and fish. It's all good. We say, oh, God is good. Like God is not good when he doesn't give us stuff like that. But when we're happy, he provides us with crops. God is good. He provides us with rain. Oh, God is good. All the calves come in and they're, you know, none of them die. Oh, that's great. No, the next paycheck comes in or maybe a tax refund. Oh, God is good. What if none of those things happen? What if the fields dried up? What if all the livestock got sick? What if you lost your job? What if a loved one passed away? What if all these things just fell apart? Would we still want Jesus? Because I know what I'm tempted to do, and I know what I've seen a lot of other people do when all that stuff falls apart and we shake our fist and go, where are you, God? What what are you doing? What are you thinking? Life gets difficult, and we think he's at fault. He asks us to do something impossible. And we think, what do you expect me to do? He has a plan. He's just asking us to test us, just like he did Philip. And Jesus says, don't love what I give you more than you love me. You think fish and bread are great? They are, but that's easy. That's simple. Wait till, you, wait till you see what I have for you. Wait till you see heaven opened. 
Wait till you see more of the mind of God. Wait till you see what I'm able to do to transform your life into what you've never thought possible because you've let go of needing your stuff and your security and your next meal and you've started to trust what I have to say and obey what I have to tell you. Wait till you see this. You and I furrow our brow, but the the struggle is real. See, God will really give us what we need. But we need Jesus first and foremost. Remember what he said in verse 27. Do not work for food or money or health. Do not work for relationships or your house, or security. Don't work for your job. Don't work for your career. Don't look for your grades. Don't look for... You fill in the blank. Don't work for this stuff that spoils. But for food that endures to eternal life, which I will give you. He said something really similar in In Matthew 6, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And what? All these things will be given to you as well. But we can be slaves to our appetites. We can be slaves to our addictions. We can be slaves to our fears and our worries. We can be slaves to our routine. Hear me. (laughs) We can be slaves to our familiar surroundings. And we can miss the freedom that comes just from knowing and wanting and needing him. Sometimes Jesus doesn't give us what we want in order for us to seek him for what we really need. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you'd reorient our minds. I pray that you'd reorder... I'd like to start this morning with Philippians 2, 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Living in a small town has its perks. Last week, I was headed out of town to Manhattan for most of the week. Brianna had been home for the weekend when we found she'd had two bad tires on her car. We gave her our car and sent her back to college. After getting to Manhattan, I decided to call my tire man, Jake, right there in Erie. He's right across from Pete's, and he always just comes, uh, picks up our car when we ask, puts tires on it, and brings it back. So I made the call. Hey, Jake, this is Dean. I need a favor. Sure, replied. What's up? Well, you know that gold car of Brianna's. It needs two new front tires. Keys are in the cup holder. I'm out of town. If you could swing by, grab it, put tires on it, I'll pay you when I get home. Slight pause. Okay, no problem. I got it. Problem solved. I went on with my week, not worrying about it, 
Wednesday, I received a text from Jake. Got her done. I got home Thursday night. Friday, had the opportunity to ride to Erie <coughs> with my boss, as I work in Schnute now. I asked if I could swing by, pay for the tires while I was in town, and he said, no problem. When I went in to pay, Jake Harris said, I have no idea what you're talking about. I asked, don't you remember I called you on Monday? He says, Dean, I haven't talked to you all week. Something you should know at this point. I have three Jakes in my phone. <laughs> Two of them go to this church. Okay. So my mind is blown. So I call Rhonda and ask her, who in the world did I talk to? So she says, hmm, Jake, you know, from church. I'm shaking my head in disbelief. I call Jake from church. Hey, I'm confused. Did I talk to you this week? Sure did. Incredulous at this point, I had to know. I meant to call Jake Harris. You did realize I had the wrong Jake, right? Yeah, I didn't see any reason I couldn't do this for you, so I did. My jaw hit the floor. I shared the story with my coworkers. They wanted to know more. Why would someone do something like this? What would make a person go above and beyond like this? Comments were made by my coworkers that if someone had called them, that sure would not have been the response they would have given. Some of my coworkers aren't Christians. Some of their views of Christianity might be questionable, but they were touched. I began to think again about a servant's heart. Several devotions lately had mentioned the mindset and heart of a servant. What does it look like? Is it self-sacrificing? Is it boastful or proud? Matthew 5.40 says, if anyone demands you replace one of their tires, replace them both. <laughs> My paraphrase, of course. And 41 and 42 says, give it to one who asks you and do not turn away from one who wants to borrow from you. And again from Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of to the interests of others. And here's the key, and we don't want to miss this part. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made a human likeness, and, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. That's Philippians 2, 3 through 8. If we all had the mindset of Christ mentioned in this scripture, how much differently would the world view Christianity? If we all did things without selfish ambition or vain conceit, wouldn't the world want to know more about him? To take, a, take it one step further, we delivered supper to this good Samaritan, only to find out he hadn't even told his wife of his good deed another sign of authenticity. I want a servant's heart. I want an authentic heart. This morning we have the opportunity to come to the table, to come to him. If we eat the bread, symbolizing his body broken for us, and drink the juice as a symbol of his blood poured out to us, I am in awe of the humbleness he became so that I might live. 
let us thank him, praise and worship him for the ultimate act of servanthood. May this be our model. May this be our example. May this be our prayer to be more like Jesus. Father God, we love you and we praise you. We pray for servant's heart. We pray to be like Jesus. We know that in our brokenness that we can only attempt, but we pray that, that we get a little closer every day, that we, that we um, show ourselves to the world so that when they look at us, they see you. And we just thank you so much for, for his sacrifice, for, for Jesus' blood that he spilled for us, for his brokenness of his body for us. And we just love you. And we praise you in your son's name. Amen.